Amen. Amen. Can you all hear me okay if I use this one? Okay. Hopefully they can hear me online. I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> the sound online, uh, so I apologize if part of it is too loud, part of it is too soft. At some point, we'll get better equipment <laughs> and do it, do it the way it's supposed to be done. But I've been so excited about today. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I've shared with you, I was thinking about this this morning, I've shared with you that I never thought that I would be a preacher. I never, I never, you know, I, I felt called to be a worship leader, and that's what I was for 15 years. And, you know, to get up and, and sing and, and all that, that, that was awesome. That was my life. I loved that, right? But to get up and preach was very different, you know, and I, I had had occasion to do that. And it was easy to do that, you know, with the college young people and, you know, being in a room or whatever. But when the Lord called me to be a pastor and to preach, there, there was a responsibility that I immediately understood that, that I didn't really grasp before. And I don't think that's supposed to make you feel like negative, <laughs> but it made me feel the weight of what that meant. And, and so, all in the beginnings of the church, you know, we, we've been around a little over a year and a half now, and the beginnings of it was this a little bit of trepidation in terms of preaching. One, because oftentimes, as I've shared with you, he wouldn't tell me what we're going to speak on until either the night before or that morning. But more than that, it was the responsibility of delivering God's message of delivering his word and what he wanted to say to his people through me. So there was a little bit of trepidation in that. You know, just, just concerned that I wanted to make sure that I had myself in a place where he could just use me. And, and I got to tell you that, that recently there's been a shift in that. And I've been excited about it. I, I don't know that I really expected it. But now I find myself, over the last maybe month, month and a half, I've found myself eager. And, and last night was a good example of that. I, I had a difficult time sleeping because I was eager to be up here. Because I knew what God was going to do. I knew what he was going to say. And I knew that the enemy couldn't do a thing about it. And that's what I loved. See, the enemy is really angry right now. He is angry because of some information that the bride of Christ is learning. And specifically that Jesus is teaching us. See, and I, I, I'm not going into this yet because this is actually part of the spiritual warfare series that I know God's going to bring out. We're just not there yet, but I've got to give you a hint. <laughs> because he's been teaching me since I was in California, what, what was that, five weeks ago or whatever. He was teaching me that, that we have a process in which we can keep the enemy from knowing what we're doing. Now, I'm not talking about when we keep it in our mind. 
Okay? Because we know the enemy can't read our mind. He can't, he doesn't know our thoughts. That's why when, when we are in battle with him, we speak it out, right? We speak it out so he can hear it. That's why that last song, I wanted, I, I just wanted to sing out a declaration of what that chorus was saying. So we speak it out loud. So, but I'm not talking about how we could keep it from the enemy because we keep it in our mind. Because see, as Christians, we can't do that. As Christians, we have to develop a strategy, knowing the Lord's strategy, to take back what the enemy has taken from us, right? In some cases, land. In many cases, people. In many cases, governments. Just as Satan develops strategies to take them in the first place, Jesus Christ has strategies to take them back. But see, I didn't realize that there was a way to keep those strategies from the enemy, from him knowing them. And, and I began praying about two weeks before I went out to California because I knew I, I was going out there to, to deal with a, a problem that God had called me to deal with. It was an issue that, that a very large ministry out there was having with the principality. And God had told me to go and help them deal with that. And, and as God is downloading to me how to deal with that when I get out there, I kept praying to him, Lord, First of all, I can't remember all this. <laughs> I need to write this down. And, and, but I'm, I'm concerned because if I write it down, the enemy's gonna see it. And I don't want him to see it. And I, I didn't get a specific answer, but I, I had a piece that it was okay. I knew I needed to write it down because I couldn't remember it all. As I'm studying it in the Word and as, as God is downloading to me what needs to be done out there, I'm, I'm writing it out. Or I should say typing it out because it was on my iPad. But, but as I'm doing this, I'm praying, Lord, cover this. Cover this so the enemy doesn't see it. So he doesn't know the strategy that we're doing. So he doesn't even know I'm coming. He doesn't know what's going on. Just cover it. And the entire time I'm praying that, you know, I didn't really know if anything was being done. Well, when I got out to California and the first full day I'm there, we dealt with this situation. And one of the things I had asked the seer who was with me, who, who saw this principality, I said, I said, what is he doing right now? Now, keep in mind, I didn't tell her a thing. All right. I didn't tell her anything. And I do that for confirmation. But she said, she, she looked at him and she told me where he was because I can't see. I don't have that gifting. But she told me he's right there, but he's looking very confused. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, he, he knows we're here, but he doesn't know why. He knows we're speaking, but he cannot understand what we're saying. And immediately... God began to show me it's because I had prayed for it to be covered. Well, he didn't know we were there the whole time. He didn't know what we were doing the entire time. So fast forward, over the next couple of weeks, God began to show me, and then just this last Tuesday confirmed so clearly that we have a weapon against the enemy. And I am getting into this, aren't I? I didn't intend to get into this. I, I will be quick because I don't want to lay it all out. It's part of what's coming in a couple of weeks. 
But we have, this is important for you to know, we have a way to keep the enemy from knowing what God is having us do. See, because when he knows, he then can develop strategies against. If you ask any general in the army, any general at wartime, what is the most important asset that you can have? It's not going to be more guns. It's not going to be more troops. It's going to be, I need to know what the enemy's doing. See, if I know what the enemy's doing, then I can strategize a plan to thwart that. So if Satan knows what we're doing, he can strategize a plan to stop us from doing it. And as we get into today's lesson and and over the next couple of weeks, you'll see that he actually has a right to do that. He doesn't just overpower God and then decide, I'm going to go in and have my plan. No, he actually is given a right to do that. And oftentimes we're the ones that give him the right. We're going to get into that. But if you ask the Lord, if you go before the throne of God in agreement with Jesus Christ, who is our advocate before the throne, and you ask that it be covered, whatever it is you're doing, then it will be covered because you go in agreement before the throne of God. Now, there's one caveat to that. See, to be in agreement with Jesus Christ, we can't have known sin in our life. When there is known sin, I'm, understand I'm not saying all sin, okay? Because what comes between our relationship with Jesus Christ is known sin. Unconfessed, known, deliberate sin. When we have that in our lives, then don't expect to keep anything stealth with the enemy. You can't. Why? Because we give him the right to listen. We give him the right to invade our privacy. So this brings me full circle to what I said at the beginning. The enemy is angry because he can't be here this morning. He can't listen in to what we're talking about, and he wants to. Because, see, God has a plan. God has a plan to bring us back to that passionate first love of him. In relationship with Jesus Christ. So, that wasn't even my intro. But, that's something you needed to know. We will talk a lot more about that as we go. But in the past, I think we're in week five or six or whatever it is. We've spent weeks laying out the history of spiritual warfare. Going over thousands of years of results of that warfare. Seeing the very strategies that Satan has used to defeat the people of God and thwart his plans. We, we spent weeks on this. Going through showing just portion after portion after portion of what he does to thwart the bride of Christ. First in the Old Testament when he went to thwart the very coming of the Messiah. And praise God he wasn't able to be successful in that. right? But we went through that. So we could understand what this warfare is all about. And then we went through in the New Testament how he went after the church the second the church was birthed. He began to go after the church. Go after individuals. Right? And he continues to this day. See, he is privy to the same information we are. 
And we're going to get into this a little bit later too. But he knows more about you than you know about yourself. See, you know, Psalm says there was a book written about each one of us before we were ever conceived. See, that book has God's will for our lives in it. It has what he wants. But Satan, which I'll explain in a few minutes, has access to those books. He has to by legal right. And we're going to get into that. So how does he get away with doing all of that? How does Satan get away with going after the church? How does he get away with going in and wrecking somebody's life? How could a righteous God sit back and let him do that? We talked about that a little bit before. But it's important to understand he doesn't. See, God is a righteous God. And Satan has the right the legal right to do everything that he has done in our lives. And that right is given by us. That right is given on personal levels all the way up to governmental levels. You see, Satan has the right to do that because God the Father is the judge and his throne is a courtroom. When I began to learn this, I got an entire different outlook on what relationship with Christ was. An entire different outlook on what Christianity was. What this warfare that swirls around us is all about. I want you to begin to get in your mind that heaven is a court. And we're going to open up the word of God and I'm going to show you what that means. These aren't my words, these are his words. And I remember first time I, I was being opened to this as the Holy Spirit was speaking to me, I, I get, you know, I'm, I'm getting this different picture of what the throne of God is and, 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 and what that courtroom meant, and it became eye-opening to me, I mean, almost overnight. It became eye-opening to me the power that we have in spiritual warfare that we do not even understand, that we do not even yield, or wield, sorry. We have power in this warfare that we're not aware of. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 9. This is a prophecy of the end time, but I want to use it as an example because this is an example of what happens every day and all the time. Remember, court, heaven is a courtroom, and the Father is a judge. He's a righteous judge. Let's start at verse 9. We're going to read down through verse 14. Or wait. Yeah, is it 14? No. Verse 10 we'll go through. Just 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, who is God the Father. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times 10,000 stood before him. By the way, 
That's the difference of human and angels. Okay, those who served him are those who were created to serve. Okay? The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. See, this is a view of a future judgment. This is a view of a final judgment. When the book of the Lamb is opened up and, and the finality of judgment is completed. But this scene goes on every day, all the time. See, God doesn't just take his seat as judge in the end. He took his seat as judge before any of this was created. You understand, his righteousness demanded it. He had no choice. But the Father took his seat as judge the moment that man gave away his authority by sinning with Eve. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, then it became a conflict. Are you following me? See, before that, the righteousness was always there, but there was not a need of a courtroom. Although his righteousness was then as well. So when that righteousness came out and was challenged, it was challenged by sin. It was challenged by those angels that fell. It was challenged then by man himself. God then had his place already, because of righteousness, had his place on his throne, which was a judgment throne. So now I want you to picture the father like a judge in a courtroom on his judgment seat, on his throne. He is there to judge what comes before him. But I want you to understand something. There are presenters that come before him. Just like in a courtroom today. You and I cannot just go into a, a courtroom and, and just start talking all we want. We have to be received and accepted by the court. And there's always two sides. Never a third side, right? There's never one side. One side might be better than the other. <laughs> but there's always two sides in court. It's no different in the court of heaven. I want you to turn. Well, let me show you this first before we get to this. Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Because I want, you to po- I want to point this out as well. That just as God judges right now amongst everything, Jesus Christ will also be a judge. When he comes for the second time and takes his throne... Right now, he's not on his throne. He's at the right hand of his father, but it is not the throne that has been prepared for him. The throne that has been prepared for him is David's throne. It's an earthly throne. That's why we get into, he comes again, he takes control, and we have a thousand-year reign of Christ, right? That's when he takes his earthly throne. But Christ will become a judge, But not just Christ. So will we. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says this. And we're going to go down through 7. Then he showed me Joshua. This isn't Joshua who 
fought the battle of Jericho. This is Joshua the high priest. This is later. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Did you catch that? Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now I want you to keep in mind this is Old Testament. So you have Joshua who is the high priest. He is the one who stands for Israel before the throne of God. He is Israel's lawyer. He is Israel's attorney. The word there for high priest is advocate. Advocate in the Hebrew is effectively one who practices law and fights for somebody else. It's an attorney. It's a lawyer. So on one side you have Joshua, the lawyer for Israel, God's chosen people. Then on the other side you have Satan who is accusing him. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them be a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus said the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, meaning Israel, and have charge of my courts. He refers to everything going on here as a court. Because as in heaven, remember how Jesus told us to pray? As, on, as in, you know, earth, do on earth as you do in heaven. So the courts that Joshua was put in charge of, they were not just earthly courts. He was placed judge over Israel in earthly courts, but he was the literal attorney that was in the heavenly court for Israel. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Remember this scene is going on in heaven. Don't think that he is just being put in charge of earthly courts. He said, I will give you access, the right of access. Not just, hey, yeah, come on in, I'll, I'll get you in, I'll get you in the back door. No, he's giving him a certificate saying, you have the right to be here. You have the right to fight for Israel. You have the right to be their advocate. You have been prepared for that very thing. I give you the right to do that amongst, having access amongst those who are standing here. And this scene that we're watching is in heaven. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. I don't think I need to go on there. Yeah, no, I, that was the last one. Verse 7. It's really important to understand what was going on there was he was being 
received into the court of heaven, having the very authority to fight for Israel. Okay? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, because that was Old Testament. Let's throw in some New Testament here, because nothing changes except one thing. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, Paul was writing here to the Corinthian church because they were all, they were taking each other to court and doing all kinds of things and, but it was a worldly court. They weren't staying in amongst themselves. And he's saying, he's saying, you know, you can't judge yourselves. Again, verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? See what he's talking about, and I won't I won't rabbit trail here, but what he's talking about is in the millennium, we will be in the court system with Jesus Christ. We will judge angels. Nothing changed in terms of the court from Old Testament to New Testament. Nothing changed. God's still sitting on his throne. God still judges what is brought before him. God is still a righteous judge. Righteousness has to be fulfilled. And he can only go on the evidence that's put before him. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Because in this court, we've already established that there's an accuser and an advocate in the Old Testament. But let's look at what did things change in the New Testament. See, Revelation 12 verse 10 says this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In other words, Jesus Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Now this hasn't happened yet. This is future. Okay, the accuser is still very active. But this is talking about a future time when Jesus Christ returns. But I want you to get this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. But I want to establish the fact here that we have an accuser that is before the throne of God day and night accusing us. Imagine an attorney that doesn't sleep. Imagine a prosecutor that will gain as much information as he can and strategies to gain that information, strategies to twist that information, and he is before the throne of God day and night accusing you. See, I'm not making this up. That's what it says. He accuses the brethren day and night. That that word there, by the way, Accuser. Accuser. The Greek word there is kategoros, which means a complainant at law against one in the assembly. So as much as we don't like it, Satan's an attorney. 
Satan's an attorney. He is a lawyer. He has been given the right to go before the throne of God and accuse us. Bring whatever evidence he wants to bring before the throne. He has the right to do that. We have an accuser that does that. Why? Because we gave him the right. When Adam sinned and when Adam took of that fruit, he gave Satan the title deed to the world. See, because it was in his possession. It was in his possession. He was the one in charge. And when he sinned, he gave that. He did the one thing he wasn't supposed to do, and he gave that right to the enemy. Immediately, that gave the enemy the right to accuse because there was sin present. And righteousness demanded that it be exposed. See, don't think that Satan wants you he, he wants to keep your sin hidden and, and nobody knows about it because you kind of keep it hidden and, and it's okay, you live a good life and, and nobody knows. Do you understand he doesn't care about that? He doesn't care because he takes that before the throne of God. And he says that I have the right to go after this person because they invited me there. They invited me there when they gave me that right. When they sinned, they gave me that right, just like Adam. That's what he was allowed to do with Adam. And from Adam all have sinned. We were born into sinful flesh, right? So he has the right to accuse us, and he takes full advantage of that right. He's there day and night, the Bible says. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. Because praise God... Just like the Old Testament, they had a high priest, they had a lawyer, they had an attorney that would represent them in the court. So do we as the body of Christ. So do we as Christians. We have an attorney who represents us. Now, by the way, that attorney had to be one of like, right? He had to be like us. To represent us, he had to be like us. To represent us, he had to understand us. To represent us, just like the priest of old, he had to be pure. Now with the priests, they were purified annually because of their sin. Their sin was purged by, by the shedding of blood of the animal sacrifices. But see, when Jesus Christ came, he was the permanent sacrifice for all sin. That gave him then the right to be our advocate our attorney, our lawyer. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, <laughs> should say, but when you do sin, because we all sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And I'll just read verse 2 as well. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. In other words, he paid that price. But see, we have an advocate now before the Father's throne. We have an advocate who fights for us when we have accepted Jesus Christ into our heart. We automatically have a lawyer on retainer. Is that crazy? 
We don't have to pay him. We pay him with our lives. He does that because he loved us. He loves us so much that he was tired of the enemy having all the power in the courtroom. So he came and he shed his blood. His perfect life was given to earn the right to be in that courtroom representing us. So I want you to picture that. The court of heaven, you have the righteous judge. God the Father, he is a righteous judge. You have an accuser on one side saying everything he can about you. Accusing, and and we'll get into this a little bit, even accusing things that are false. He will pull together everything he can. And he presents his evidence. But now we have an advocate who is there fighting for us. By the way, that word advocate that we just read, um, let me pull up the Greek on it. Uh, verse, verse 1 here. That word advocate is the Greek word paraclete. It's an intercessor, a counselor, summoned, called to one's side, especially to one's aid as a matter of law. So even on this side, on our side, we have an attorney. We have this court system that's been set up for the sake of righteousness. So what plays a part in this court? So we have an advocate. We have an accuser. We have the righteous judge. What throws that court into session? What, what throws it into a battle zone? You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched any you know, court TVs or anything like that, but a really good court case is really gripping television. When they're going after each other and they're, they're just, you know, one's presenting this, the other's presenting this, it becomes a battle zone. So, so in the courts of heaven, what causes that? What causes heaven's court to be active, to be turned upside down, if you will, with warfare? It's our words. Our words dictate this warfare. Our very words create the conflict. By the way, good and bad. Our good words create the conflict. When we say, praise you, Jesus, we have an accuser that wants to go up there and say, well, I know they're praising you, but here's what they did. Okay, and, and, and so they shouldn't have the benefits of that praise, the benefits of that relationship. They should not get the benefits of what they're doing. Why? Because behind the scenes, this is what they're doing. So you see, we have that accuser going based on our words. He can't read our minds, praise God, but he can hear our words. And words are so incredibly powerful. Let's look at that. Turn to Daniel chapter 10. And by the way, James says the same thing, that the tongue, there's nothing more powerful than the tongue. But let's look at 
Daniel chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 12. And you know the story here where, where Daniel was shown a vision. He was trying to find out the meaning of this vision. He prayed about it and nothing, he, nothing was given. It was 21 days he fasted to get this word back, this, this, uh, what this vision meant. And then three days after the 21 days, an angel came to him. Gabriel came to him. And so that we pick it up at verse 12. Then he said to me, Gabriel said to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come here because of your words. See, the words are what put that into action. But let's go to verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, which by the way there, the prince of the kingdom of Persia is a principality that was in charge of the nation of Persia. Okay, it was in charge of what was going on at that point. This, this is not a human prince. This is a fallen angel that was given authority over Persia. So, Gabriel said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. He could not get through. As much as Gabriel tried, he could not get through. There was warfare going on. And it was through the fasting of Daniel, it was through the prayer of Daniel, and, and the submission of his own life, that reinforcement was sent. And he said, but Michael was sent... One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. And then later he says, I need to leave now because there's another one i got to deal with. You, you have to understand the mindset of the angels. They do know that this is a court system. That God's righteousness is decided in that court. Do you understand? God cannot make the choice to say, well, I know you didn't mean it, so it's okay. Because of righteousness, he has to be pure in that righteousness. Because of sin, there has to be a payment for sin. And Satan uses that letter of the law to attack us when we fall. He brings that to the court as an example, but it, it, it is all sparked by our words, what we say, good and bad. If we're saying something bad, that is ammunition for him to take to the court. Or if we're doing something bad. If we're saying something good, and we're beginning to have a testimony for Jesus Christ, you ever wonder that the people that are standing up for the Lord and really beginning to have a testimony and outreach, you ever wonder why they get attacked so much? I mean, look around with people that you know. They tend to go through things that it's like, oh my goodness, how in the world? You, you love God, right? Why are you having to go through this? See, it's because Satan sees what's going on with their lives. But then he can go back to the book I told you about, the book that was written about each one of us. And he can say, I see God's plan for their life. 
Why? Because all the books in heaven are available to both the prosecution and the defense. It's no different than here. Where do you think we get our laws? Where do you think we get our practices? Because it operates the same way in heaven. But because of God's righteousness, he cannot alter that. So our words are what dictate this very warfare. The conflict begins in the courtroom and plays out in the battlefield. And this is something very important to understand because oftentimes, and I'm accused of, I accuse myself of this before really understanding this. You know, we're going through something tough and, well, I command this demonic spirit to leave me alone. Well, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot if you don't have authority to command it. It also doesn't mean anything if something is going on in your life that the accuser has that is a representation against what you're doing. So see, the battlefield part where you command that demonic spirit to leave, that has to be an after effect of a verdict in the courtroom. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let let me give you an example. Let's say you're a landlord, okay, and and you have a renter, and this renter hasn't paid you for a year. (laughs) Been there, done that. Didn't get paid. Hasn't paid. So now I need to get him out. I need to get him out and get somebody in there that's going to pay. But, you know, I can't just go in there, grab him by the back of the neck, and throw him outside. There is a legal process that I can do that. I can't just walk in and say, this is now my stuff. And you get out. you got ten minutes. You get out of here right now. Or I'm going to throw you out. Even though it's my house. Even though it's my house and I've let them live there. I can't legally do that. If I were to do that, well, they'd probably sue me and get the house. <laughs> right? I can't legally do that. So what do I have to do? I have to go to the court system. I have to prove what they have done. I have to prove that they have not paid me. I have to prove by contract that they said they would pay and they did not pay. They did not hold up their part of the deal. And then I have to go through that process of getting a verdict that then I can take to them and then I have the right to throw them out. You see, that's the difference between the courtroom and the battlefield. The battlefield is a losing battle until you have the verdict that you need in the first place. So when, when we're dealing with the enemy, we have to first deal with them in the courtroom. There has to be a verdict rendered in our favor. Then we have all authority and all right to get them out. Just like a landlord. When you get those, that eviction, you know, the right to eviction, and that's, that's assigned in the court, then you could go do it. You just go call the sheriff's office, get them out. Why? Because I have the legal right to tell you to get them out. They do not have the right to be here anymore. So once that right is established in the court, then there's nothing the enemy can do about it. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18. This is, 
This is a passage we're familiar with. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching them effectively how to pray. And, and really, that, that's kind of what we look at this as. But there's so much more to hear than, than, than what we originally see. So chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, this is a, this is a parable as to why you pray and how you pray and, and what, what effect it has. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Which, by the way, is the same word that is the same word as accuser that we read earlier about Satan. Okay? Give me justice against my accuser or adversary. For a while he refused. The judge refused the widow. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, we look at that and, and we think the main lesson is we got to bug God. <laughs> you know, you read that, okay, well, the lady did it by bugging him and, okay, God wants me to bug him. So I'm just going to start bugging him. I'm going to just bug him for the same. I, you know what? I want a new Jeep. By the way, I really do. <laughs> I, I have on, on my computer this, this picture of my, my ultimate Jeep. That is my Jeep. So I'm going to start bugging God for it. I'm going to bug him until he gets so tired of me bugging him, he's going to give me the Jeep. That's not what this says. First of all, would that be healthy? No, no that's ridiculous. I mean, it'd be awesome to get the Jeep. Don't get me wrong. But that's not healthy. That's not what God wants. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, be like the widow and bug me to death. And then I'll grant it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying even an unrighteous judge paid attention. How much more will I pay attention? But you have to understand that this is a court. You have to understand that there are things that she did that made it come to pass. Number one, we never put prayer on the battlefield. What we said earlier, prayer is always in the courtroom. When we go and pray, it is before the throne of God... It is not, we're praying to clear a battlefield. Prayer is always in the courtroom. Prayer steps us into the judicial system of heaven. Just like when this widow went before this judge, she had a concern. She stepped into the courtroom to deal with that concern. As we pray, we have to understand we are stepping into a courtroom. We're walking in court and we're sitting next to our advocate, Jesus Christ, who is our representation, who is our attorney, 
But when you pray, you're coming before the throne of God. You are coming before the very throne of God. Number two, when in prayer, the widow only addressed the judge. Let's look at that. It doesn't say in here that she ever talked to her accuser. She just kept coming to me and coming to me and coming to me. Right, so number two here that's important to understand is you're talking to God and your focus is on Him. You're coming before the court to deal with Him. Have you ever watched, I can't remember what it was called. It might have been People's Court or something like that. The, the TV show where, where uh, Judge Wapner... <laughs> Remember, Jim? That's probably way before some of y'all's time. But, but you, you have this TV courtroom, and you have two people, and they got the most ridiculous people in the world that had a problem. I, I think they took people that the court would not deal with because they'd come in there, and they'd have just the craziest things. He took my red shoes, and they're worth $5 million, whatever. Well, you notice that they would deal with the judge directly. But invariably, every single time, they would start arguing between them. And what would Judge Wapner do? Uh, Excuse me, you only address me. You never address each other. You don't talk to each other. Why? Because you're opposing. If I am here to judge this process, you speak only to me. Now, I'm pretty sure that, well, no, I won't say that. Judge Wapner, in his courtroom, deals with the same process that is being taught here. You deal with the judge. You don't deal with the accuser. You don't sit there and say, well, you said, and you don't have any right, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you could do that. It's just not going to get you anywhere. There's no authority in it. You could tell him all you want, how angry you are with him. Do you think he cares? No, as a matter of fact, if he could get you angry, he'd love that. If he could get you outside of yourself, outside of your own control, he would love that. So see, when we deal with an issue, when we deal with a problem that we're being accused of, you never deal with the accuser. You never, you never deal with him directly. You deal before the judge. Why? Because the judge is righteous. And he has the power to render verdict. So you deal with him directly. Number three. Now, by the way, in this, it's very important to understand something. You have to have a legal right to go before the Lord. In accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're given the legal right to do that. He is our representation. Why? Because of his blood. His blood that purchased us. That purchased the right to stand before a righteous father for a sinful people. Jesus Christ purchased that with his blood. So when we are covered in his blood... It gives us the right to go before him. Number three, in terms of this process. Once a verdict is rendered on your behalf, justice is given speedily. Let's read that again, verse 7. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Oh, my goodness. We have such a wrong concept of God to think that he sits up there and delays his love, delays his joy, delays his rendering a verdict. We think, well, you know, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe, maybe I did something bad and, and he doesn't care for me anymore. Maybe I deserve this. And we put it off on God delaying because of our unrighteousness. But do you understand that we're righteous before God? If you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, then you take on his righteousness. In God's eyes, you are perfect. There's nothing that you could do to change that, no matter what. So the delay isn't because of that. The delay isn't because God doesn't want to render the verdict. It says it here. When the, when the evidence is before him, he will render a verdict speedily, quickly, immediate. Why? Because he wants to. He loves us. But he has to have a legal right to do it. I just know the father sits up there and he just is like, please give me a legal right. I don't want to rule in his favor. Do you think he wants to rule in Satan's favor? Absolutely not. Satan took his son from him. Why would he want to rule for him? But for righteousness sake, he has to rule what is in front of him. So see, if we don't show up at our court case, the judge has no choice but to rule in the other side's verdict. See, if you have a court case coming up and you don't show up to court, what's that judge going to do? He renders the verdict for the opposition. Why? Because there is no other evidence a judge, a righteous judge, can only judge based on what's in front of him. The evidence presented to him. So on one side, you've got a, a, a tireless attorney that hates everything, digs up all kinds of junk, even that isn't there, and accuses. In the corporate world, it's similar to just flooding so much paperwork on an opposing attorney, they can't do anything about it. See, that's the kind of opposition we have. And then we have Jesus Christ who purchased us with his life and is standing before the judge, and he's just standing there. The, the, the accuser has already laid out his, his information, all his evidence, and Jesus is just standing there, and the father says, what do you have? And Jesus says, my client's not here. I, I can't give anything. He, he's not here. See, he can't represent us 
when we're not there, when we're not in agreement with him. He can't represent us. We're going to get into this next week, but there's a reason for that. In Deuteronomy, it says that truth is established by two or three witnesses. As righteous as Jesus is, he is our advocate. He cannot be our righteousness for us outside of our justification. And that's what we've talked about before. When we get saved, we are justified by the blood of the Lamb. Nothing can take it away. That is that, when we read Daniel the first time, that that end-time judgment, those end-time judgments are where that takes effect. Are you saved? Are you not saved? Did you accept Jesus? Did you not accept Jesus? See, what we're talking about right now is our sanctification. From the moment you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart until you breathe your last breath, that's the period of time you have to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. And and really what you're doing is you're developing a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, through the lens, the filter of Jesus Christ. So if you do not partner with Christ to defend yourself in the court, you're going to lose every time. Do you understand? If you don't show up to court, then you're going to lose. We're going to get into next week, how do we show up to court? Because see, there's power in those two, at least two or three witnesses. And we'll get into the fact that I'll, I'll give you some examples of where we've had many witnesses. And in the Bible, how there were many witnesses and there was a powerful verdict. You ever watch a courtroom drama where there is so much overwhelming evidence for one side that the judge gets angry? And he says, I render verdict for them. This shouldn't even be in my court. You understand that's how the Father wants to react to every verdict for us. Because he loves us. Because we were purchased by the blood of his Son, So what we have to do is we have to partner with Jesus Christ to do that very thing. I want to go through one last thing, just two minutes. You know what? No, we'll do that next week. That'll get into a whole new thing. But I want you to understand that heaven is a courtroom. And if we're going to battle in this life that we're in, It has to be done in that courtroom. Because if it's not, we're just beating against the air. Just like what Paul said, he he practices, but it's so he doesn't just beat against the air. But that when he goes to court, he lands those punches. He lands those blows. So we have to understand that God is a righteous judge, and he is judge over a courtroom, we have an accuser day and night coming after us. But we have an advocate to fight for us. But he can't do the fight alone. We have to engage in that with him. Let's bow our heads for prayer.